This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and a podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. Welcome to the Big Ed Idea Podcast, the official podcast of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Southwestern Indiana. Together, we will embark on a journey of mentorship, connection, and the life-changing power of relationships. Each episode, we will learn from authentic conversations with bigs, littles, experts in the field of mentoring, and other defenders of potential. Whether you are a seasoned mentor, a curious listener, or someone considering joining this incredible community, kick back, unwind, and come along for the ride. Now... Here's our executive director, Ryan Scott. All right, welcome back, my friends, to the Big Ed Idea Podcast. Uh, Yeah, I'm Ryan Scott the executive director of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Southwestern Indiana. Man, it's so good to say that. Every time I say it, I love and love and love it because I literally have the coolest job in the world. I get to connect kids and build positive relationships. So, so cool. But, you know, I'm pretty excited for this episode because I get to literally interview one of my heroes, uh, one of the folks that completely uh, changed my way of thinking when I was a teacher. Um, I remember very early on in my um, teaching days being really struggling and, and really struggling. And at one point I almost left to become a police officer because I just couldn't figure out why my kids were acting the way they were acting. And after reading the work of, of this young lady and some other folks, I, I came to the conclusion that kids were doing the best that they just, they, that they could. Um, and so I am extremely excited and you probably will know this young lady, uh, Dr. Ruby Payne, who is the um, aficionado when it comes to poverty research um, and, and specifically the cultures of poverty and, and everything that goes around that. Um, and so, yeah, without further ado, Dr. Payne, welcome to the Big Ed Idea Podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure for me. And thank you so much for that introduction. Yeah, it was easy. I mean, you know, you're you're kind of a big deal and you've, <laughs> you've brought so much um, gosh, clarity and knowledge to the world. I think um, you changed the way people look at poverty. Um, you really, I, I, in my opinion, really changed um, the stigma or the uh, negative feelings in a lot of places surrounding poverty. Well, I think one of the things uh, I I think that one of the things I've started talking about the fact is that everybody in the world is alike in this way. They yeah. have twenty four hours a day. Right. And how you spend your time, okay, determines to a large extent who you know and what you know. And whatever your environment then requires from you to survive. So basically, you have an environment in which you have to survive. You have your time, which to a large extent tells you who you know and what you know. Absolutely. And then you balance that against your resources to manipulate 
the survival, stability. Do you know sure. what I mean? Sure, sure. And those rules, how you do that changes depending on those variables. And I think that a lot of people have come to understand that how you spend your time in poverty, in survival. I saw a documentary uh, from a young man in LA. He's 17 years old. And on the documentary, they he's homeless. They asked him, how do you spend your time? He said, I spend seven to eight hours a day hunting food. Sure. Well, if that's what you do with your time, that means there's a whole bunch of other things you don't learn and you don't know. Oh gosh. That's that. And that's so, so true. Um, you know, Dr. Payne, one of the, one of my core beliefs, especially when it comes to learning is that, and, and something I employed in my own classroom, um, was that you've got, we've got to put connections before the content. Um, and so, you know, I know, you know, you are deep into this poverty space, but I want to know who Ruby is outside of, of the doctor. Um, and so I've got some questions that we're going to start with to let our listeners know, uh, like I said, a little more who Ruby is, and then we'll get into the doctor pain stuff, if you're cool with that. Sure, absolutely. Okay. So I asked you to bring today three words that describe life right now. Right now, life is busy. Oh, it's challenging. Okay, and it's um, uh, I'm on a big learning curve right now. Okay, okay, I get that. I completely get that. At our house, um, my wife and I have four kids, four girls. One's in college, other three. One's in middle school, two in elementary. Uh, we've got kids going for piano lessons. We've got. Uh, dance team. We've got church. I get the busyness. Um, learning curve. Oh, shoot. After coming from 16 years out of education into now nonprofit, I get you. I get you. But it's a fun ride. It's a fun ride. Um, okay. So busy, learning curve. And what was the other one you said? Challenging. Challenging. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. So outside of your professional world, who is Ruby? Well, Ruby, probably a lot of people think she's pretty boring. <laughs> uh, I like to read. Okay. okay. Um, I am uh, uh, my husband. Um, my former husband died. I remarried uh, 10 years ago. So he has a boat. So we go out in the boat. Okay. Periodically, we'll do offshore fishing. He's got oh. a motorcycle. So I motorcycle. Oh, ride. there you go. And then he has um, four children, uh, eight grandchildren, and I have a son who lives in Spain, and he nice. has a grandchild. So I go to Spain three times a year to see the grandchild. So it's just busy. Busy. A good busy. Yeah. 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 And oh, then I'm yeah. writing, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated right now. We can talk about that later, but fascinated with neurobiology. Um uh, neuropsychology, but more neurobiology, quantum biology, kind of the um, deep stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the nerdy okay. stuff, I nerdy guess. Nerdy stuff. Hey, listen, I'm a nerd by heart. I've got um, probably about 10 books I still need to read. And my wife says, stop ordering books. Uh, I just can't. I, I love to learn. Um, so, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Okay. So, that's who Ruby is. Um, I also, you know, since this is a podcast basically centered around mentoring, I'm always fascinated by how people got to where they're at in life. And, 
and and particularly, you know, because we believe uh, kids do the best they can with the skills they have, and they learn those skills through those skills through positive connections. And so each of us, in my humble opinion, got to where we're at because of folks around us. So I'm curious to ask Dr. Payne of maybe somebody in your life that you would you would call a mentor. Well, one of the things I've been lucky. I had a lot of them. Yeah. Okay. I really have had a lot of them. Um, one in particular was my father. He was a minister. Okay. Oh. And he was a great storyteller. And the thing of it was, so you got to remember, I had to go to church three times a week growing up, you know? And he was the only minister, right? So the bottom line is he had to recycle sermons, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So I got bored, okay, because I'd hear the, the thing coming around, and I'd be going, uh-oh, that's the wrong story to tell there. You should have used the one you had last time. And da, 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 da. So in my mind, I'm having this, you know, kind of analysis. So I think that helped me be a speaker. Um, and then um, I had, you always have mentors about of people who you don't want to be like. Okay? Sure, sure. Uh, I had my first boss... <laughs> Uh, she could have written Machiavelli's book better than he did. Okay, <laughs> she uh, she would tell me to do things verbally, and then when I did it, she'd write me up for um, insubordination because. And one time I said to her, "But you asked me to do this," and she said, "But you have no proof of that." Okay, so oh, that, yeah, she went through my desk at night. I almost left her a note one day. Hey, Shirley. <laughs> but I uh, learned a lot. But the one of the mentors that had the most, um, I had a couple of them influence on me significantly was an assistant principal who, who really taught me how to teach. And yeah. then a, a boss I had when I worked for regional service center, um, his name was Gerald Cook. And um, he was phenomenal. He, he, I learned so much about, leadership like how you finesse a, a political situation he, he i learned so much from him i love that and you know i had forgot you were a teacher yeah uh-huh did you start yeah. out as a teacher yes uh-huh i uh high school oh wow nine years i taught high school um and and i loved i loved high school okay i i love those kids okay they're um i get it yeah you kind of gotta learn how to work with them you know what i mean oh yeah um, and you can't take them too seriously. Do you oh, know no. what I mean? Oh, no. But the thing, I mean, you do, but you don't, is what I mean. But, um, yeah, he, I had a boss who did this and he, um, he suggested that we all give, teach the same unit for three weeks and give the same test. Uh. So we did. And I had the worst results. And the first thing out of my mouth was, well, Kate, another colleague, she's got better kids than I do. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, I got Roger and I got Johnny and I got, you want them? Well, I knew Roger and Johnny. And I thought, hmm, she doesn't have better kids. So I privately went to her and said, tell me how you got it. And that's the one of the things that really started making me think a lot about yeah. how I approached instruction, et cetera. Um, but Gerald Cook was really leadership about how you deal with people who have more clout than you do, how you deal with tasks, how you negotiate a political situation. Yeah, he was invaluable. Hmm. Um, 
Then I had several superintendents who were leaders who were mentors for me. One of the most interesting things about the research on mentorship is that you, I want to say one thing about this since we're talking about it. Yeah, for sure. The research is that the, the quality of the mentoring when you're, when you're mentoring an adolescent is related to the mentor, the adult mentor. But if you're mentoring adults, the research is that the quality of the mentoring is related to the mentee, not the mentor. The second thing about mentoring is this. If you don't get a mentor in your 20s, it's a developmental handicap for your career. So one of the huge things is, and I've had people in their 20s say to me, "I I don't want a mentor. And I've said you need one and here's why. So what people don't understand about mentoring, well, first of all, let me just say this, Ryan, I'm absolutely fascinated. Probably what drives me more than anything else is how do people know what they know? Yeah. Like Michael Jordan used to say that when he was playing a basketball game, it was as if he were on the ceiling of the stadium and he could see every player all the time. Okay. Einstein figured out E equal MC squared by writing a light wave. He he didn't, he went back and proved it mathematically, but he did not discover it mathematically. So the question becomes, how do you know what you know? And in the research, what mentors give you is something called a tacit knowledge base, which we would call in the vernacular wisdom. Okay. The thing of it is, is that it's almost impossible to codify. Well, I'm fascinated in the cognitive research, how people codify um, knowledge bases. And the one that they can't codify is this tacit knowledge base or, or wisdom in that tacit means you have the ability to take a knowledge base, a situation, the people in that situation, the desired outcomes, the variables in that situation, the problems in that situation, and come to a solution that works. Okay, it's called wisdom, okay? And the way that knowledge base gets passed from people to people is stories, and almost always through mentors, okay? Thus, like in the research they did on air conditioning and uh, uh, heating and, and all those trades fields, they were trying to figure out how they developed expertise and past knowledge, okay? That tacit knowledge base, okay? And they found out that it occurred through stories. People oh, wow. would go, oh, you know, that's kind of like the problem we had on the Johnson house. Da, 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 you know? And here's kind of what we did here, but the variables in this situation are different. So, so that's what a mentor gives you is, is wisdom, a tacit knowledge base that basically is virtually impossible to get. I mean, you, you can get it in, um, some it's it's sometimes in literature it's sometimes but mostly the way it gets passed is is knowledge bases uh, a mentor mm, that it's, is that's fascinating because to me my brain get goes back to those thousands and thousands of years of human evolution where the the, the one generation learned everything they needed to know from an older generation and what, and what the way they did that, like you said, was through stories. I love that. That is so powerful. 
Well, and stories are held in the memory, in the brain research, stories are held in memory longer than any other form of memory, okay? Um, and it's probably because they're held in the hippocampus. Right. See, your amygdala, of course, is your emotional center, but your stories are held in your hippocampus, okay? And it has a much longer uh, memory base than... Uh, well, an emotional incident that burns in your memory can, but basically that emotional incident is almost always held in a story of something that happened, okay? And so stories, so one of the things that one book I read said that if you want to hold your audience with you, you have to do a story every eight minutes, okay? <laughs> uh, and I try to do that. And stories, I that you can teach faster with stories, but stories are um, remembered longer. Wow. That's funny. so if you take a mentor who you have a connection to, okay, and you feel safe and you feel you there's a connection and belonging, safety, then you will and they they impart a story to you. You have got it at a um I'm doing a lot of research right now about the autonomic nervous system and the social engagement system that you have inside your body, okay? And it's very linked to uh, facial expressions, et cetera, et cetera, um, prosody, your voice tone, et cetera. And so that all happens when people are telling a story and you are in a person-to-person -person connection. Wow. You know, the more, when I really dove into this, this field, especially around the science of connections and the science of relationships and the brain research behind it back in 2020, um, it really just lit me on fire about the repercussions of a generation that are becoming more disconnected than ever before. And I wonder sometimes are some of our ills that we're seeing in our, um, in the, in the, 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 the younger generations, is it because of the, 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 the lack of connections because we're doing so much on social media and, and, you know, so much, so much research about kids not spending time together. Um, I, I wonder what are the repercussions going to be for that down the line, you know, because there's so much research that says that's what we need. Right. But you, here's the, here's the, here's the catch. They got tons of connections right now. Kids do. Yeah. But they're online. Yeah. And, and they're not safe. Yeah. Here's the problem. When you don't have safety and belonging, it kicks off your it kicks off, as you know, your autonomic nervous system. And then what happens is it disconnects your prefrontal cortex so you can't think. Yeah. You can only react. So what it does is it drives you then to the lowest level of functioning in your autonomic nervous system, which is disengagement, which is freezing and becoming immobile and hiding. Okay. And so the thing, the, the larger thing to me is that we are really not going to get kids out of this disengagement thing neurobiologically. It's not going to happen until we get safety and belonging, because other than that, their autonomic nervous system, there's something called co-regulation and neuroception. Okay. Co-regulation is... I'll ask an audience this. Have you ever been in a room with an angry person and you could feel their anger? Okay, you've done that. You can oh, feel yeah. it. For sure. That's co-regulation. Okay. So when you're what your what your autonomic nervous system does is it sorts through about 12 trillion stimuli at any given time. And so what it's doing is it's saying it's not safe. 
uh, or it is safe. You don't belong or you do. And if, if the message comes through, you're not safe, then it disconnects the prefrontal cortex. So do you think, so getting back into this, this poverty space and, um, so kids that grow up in poverty who, like you said, spend a large majority of their day, uh, maybe just looking for resources or a large, large majority of their day, just feeling unsafe. Um, would you, is that why kids from poverty underachieve in academics? Do you think? It's one of the reasons. Yes, it's one of the reasons. Okay. It's not the whole reason. And first of all, the work has been, um, my work has, has critics, you know, like any piece of work sure. does. But one of the things is they, the work was always about the knowledge bases you have to have to survive an environment and the rules that you bring into a situation that help you survive in one environment that don't help you survive in another one. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so part of one of the things that happens in poverty is that you don't get knowledge bases like formal register. You don't get knowledge bases about abstract representational systems like um, how you deal with space. Space is an abstract representational system. How do you organize your things? If you've got 14 people in four rooms, you there's no individual space. Do you follow me? So yes. this whole concept of schooling is based upon the concept that you can handle space. It's based upon the concept that you can handle abstract representational systems like paper documents, like clocks, like time, the way you measure time. Like one of the things we learned is our kids from poverty, if you give them math manipulatives, you can kiss that goodbye because the bottom line, it doesn't help them learn math. I worked in Minneapolis public schools. They had a $6 million grant to do hands-on science. Okay. They got these kids in the test, paper, pencil test, and they all failed. I said, well, of course you did because of course they did because it didn't get translated from the concrete reality to the abstract representational reality of, of paper. I said, look, like in math, when we do math manipulatives with kids in poverty, it's like they're doing dominoes, okay? First of all, you make them draw the domino, then they put three dots on a piece of paper in the line, then they write the number three next to the dots over, you know what I mean? Oh, and yeah. then they make a word problem with it, and then they write it out. You have to translate it from that abstract, that concrete reality to the abstract representational reality. Well, middle class has tons of it. The way you do it is with paper. So you just look like all the documents you have in a middle class household, all the things you do. Um, I'll just give you one example that's fresh real life for me right now. My husband and I, my housekeeper, who I had for many years, I, I continue to support her even after she no longer worked for me, et cetera, et cetera. She's just a dear friend. She died. And she asked if... Uh, my husband, who's an accountant and a CPA, if he would do help her with her estate when she died. Well, it's been a nightmare. Like like one of her sons, uh, he, he, he had been living with her and we had to sell the house for the estate. And so finding him a place to live, well, he didn't have his birth certificate. 
He didn't have uh, he didn't have his social security card. He didn't. Do you know what I mean? All yeah. of those pieces, all those representational systems. So you don't have that. You don't have the language. You don't have the knowledge bases about how you deal with money. Okay, because money is communal. Okay, you just simply don't have a lot of the structures, the abstract structures that are assumed you will have that you have to have to negotiate an institution. Yeah. So it's knowledge basis. It is a lack. You have more trauma in poverty. Uh, nutrition is a huge issue. Uh, there's a book I just finished reading. You'd probably be interested in it. It didn't start with you. It's about the epigenetics. Writing research. it down. It didn't start with you. It's the epigenetics research. Not only uh, genetic things change, but your fears uh, your emotional realities can be inherited up to at least three generations. They know. Okay. So part of it is not just your trauma, but the trauma that's been stored in your family for generations that impact you emotionally. So there's just, there's so many variables, transportation, food. Did you get in vitro nutrition? Um, if we know from the research, if your mother had trauma while she carried you, absolutely, okay, that recorded got recorded in your genetics. And so there's, I think that you have what I call multipliers. And so it's harder and harder to put your finger on just one thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. Um, poverty is definitely one of those uh, like seven headed hydras. Um, you know, you cut one off and, and another one's going to grow back. Um, right now I'm reading a, a very, very good book called Poverty by America by Matthew. He's a gentleman. He wrote Evicted, uh, which, which Desmond. yes, phenomenal. I just got done reading it about how truly hard it is for families to really get out of that poverty. Um, and it just it just drives home that that belief to me that people are literally doing the best they can. And this includes parents, parents from my you know, we have kids in our system um, with single with a single mom, um, some with 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 two parents. Um, so we're very we try to be very clear that we are not, you know, we're not trying to fix a parenting issue. We're trying to walk alongside parents that are truly doing the best that they can. So I guess a question that I have for you moving forward, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, the, the brain and, and how poverty affects the brain. We've talked about the resources, the mindsets behind poverty. Um, how would you say other, you know, other than what we 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 talked about a little bit earlier, how do you think mentoring or having a strong mentoring helps kids that spend most of their days in poverty? So if they're able to get out of that um, environment for for as little as three hours a month, how does that help them? Well, it's huge for this reason. You're providing social bridging capital. Okay. okay. There's four reasons that people will leave poverty. One is it's too painful to stay. Number two, there's a talent or a skill. Uh, number three, there's a key relationship. 
And another, the fourth one is a vision or a goal. Okay. And the more you have of those, the more you tend to go. What social bridging capital gives you? See, in my opinion, social bridging capital is one of the hardest transitions out. I, I agree with Matthew Desmond. In some ways, I don't agree with him. Well, let me just say this. One of the things I'm really concerned about right now, first of all, I agree with him. It's very difficult to move out. Okay. Period. Okay. But I, I am very concerned that people are, there's a movement right now to say, if you are born into poverty, you're done. You're a victim. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about it. You're done. I agree. And I, I find that whole victimhood mentality not beneficial at all. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, for sure. But um, but the thing of it is, is that the more of those you have, and social bridging capital is how you get them. Okay. So you meet somebody different than you. There's bonding, social bonding capital. That's people you know who are like you. Social bridging capital are people you know who are different from you. Okay. And social bridging capital is critical to transition, whether you're moving from poverty to middle class or middle class to wealth. See, one of the biggest issues people have when they're they're middle class and they move into new money is how they begin to get their social bridging capital to move into wealth. Okay, Like people say to me, I don't understand why they spent because we do a lot of work around poverty, middle class, and wealth, and how you institutions in your, how you transition communities, okay? And if economic development, we're doing a lot more work on the development side. And if you're going to transition a community, see, part, part of the problem is people don't understand that if you're in poverty, there has to be community supports and community pieces if you're going to transition out, okay? And then if you're going to transition from middle class to wealth, you, there's, there has to be community infrastructures, okay? And one of those is social bridging capital, which people never talk about, okay? How do you meet people different than you are? People say to me, I don't understand why that person paid $10,000 for a table at a charity, and there were only eight people or six people who sat at that table. And I'm going... They didn't buy the food. Okay, that's not what they did. They bought that table so they could be introduced. Oh, for sure. You're buying the introduction. You're not buying the food. And people don't understand or they'll lay out $25,000 for a table or whatever. It's about the linkages, the introductions. Because I met this woman who, extreme poverty, she um, started working for a nonprofit, okay, And then she eventually became the executive director of that nonprofit. Okay, so she moved from extreme poverty to the executive director. I asked her, how did you get social bridging capital? She said that was the hardest part. She said the knowledge is easy to get. She said, but I she said I started at church. And people at church would invite me to go out to dinner with them. And I turned them down, she said, because I was afraid I'd have to pay. But eventually I ate enough church dinners with them and I (laughs) moved up the ladder. I knew she said. And then when I got in this job before they named her executive director, they made she was on the board. So she said, I met more people on the board as the and that's how she eventually got promoted to that position. Okay. 
And she that said, makes total that's sense. That's the hardest part. I had a, I do leadership Florida every year, which is on economic development and understanding okay. your community from a from wealth, middle class, and poverty. Okay. And this guy came, he said, I finally understand. He said, I was at this uh, gala charity event. This guy said to me, I need you to introduce me to this man over here. And I said to him, you already know him. He said, I know, but I desperately need an introduction. Yeah, yeah, I get it. He said, I didn't understand why I needed an introduction. I said, because that's how he knows you're safe. Right. In wealth, it's a hidden rule. You don't introduce yourself. You are introduced and they say your name and your connection because it says to them, this person is safe to know. Hmm. Otherwise, they they think you want something from them. So what I'm hearing you say, uh, Dr. Payne, is that for our kids in our program that that may, you know, live their lives in poverty, to be able to spend some time with someone who maybe not be in that poverty state. That is a social bridging opportunity for that kid. Totally. Totally. Oh, I love that. You you know, I thought that, um, but I'm glad to hear you say that. And I love you talked about why we leave poverty. It's too painful. Talent or skill, um, key relationship and visions and goals. And all of those are called social bridging capital. I love that. Well, they're all a piece of social bridging capital. Like, I, I know this guy, he became a lawyer, extreme poverty, uh, because he got invited to, he's African-American, he got invited to this lawyer's house with a friend, okay? And it wasn't a big deal. I think they were even stopping at the lawyer's house. To do, The guy was a black lawyer. And he said, I decided on the spot, I'm going to have a house like that sometime. If this guy can have that, Absolutely. I'm going to have that too. And so I, people think it's a big deal. A lot of times it's one comment. It's one thing. I love that. Man, I tell you what, uh, Dr. Payne, I think we have spoken quite a bit today. Um, and I always want to make these podcasts short enough to where somebody can read it on their way to or listen to it, excuse me, on their way to work and you have given me a lot to think about, but I think you've given our listeners also a lot to think about. And I think you've hit the nail on the head um, for one of the, one of the reasons why I feel like Big Brothers Big Sisters is so powerful, um, because it connects kids with a future that they might not have seen if it had not been for being in our program. I totally agree. See, I love, um, and it's so interesting you talk about that. My husband was at one time the executive director, for, not executive, or on the board of Big Brothers Big Sisters in Austin. Oh, wow. And he still got a, a guy uh, who, I don't know, 30 years ago, he was his mentor. He, he was his big brother. And the guy's very successful now in California, still keeps in touch with him. That's yeah, so I cool. mean, People don't understand how much difference one person can make in a small amount of time. Amen. Amen. We've got this amazing um, campaign that's going right now. Um, It takes little to be big. We are trying to really get the word out that, you know, some, some people come to me and they're like, Ryan, I don't have anything to offer, you know? And I said, no, you have everything to offer 
just your presence is what these kids need. So I love that you said that. And, and, um, as we transition to, to the end of this podcast, um, you have brought a ton of wealth and, and knowledge to this conversation. And, and I think anybody that listens to this is going to walk away kind of with, with a, a, a newfound, um, education and knowledge about the power of mentoring. Um, just if nothing else, that social bridging capital was not a word that I had heard before. So now I'm really going to dive into it. That comes out of Putnam's book, Bowling Alone. Oh, okay. I've got that on my Amazon cart actually right now, ready to be delivered. So, okay. I love that. Um, Dr. Payne, really the only other thing on the question that I always like to end with, um, is that, do you know of someone else that maybe I should reach out to that has something to add to this conversation around um, helping kids reach their fullest potential? Are you looking in? Which space are you looking in? Any space? Education yeah, yeah. Space? Any any space, any, any ism, any issue that would keep a kid from reaching their fullest potential? Well, I know uh, um, he, he was, um, I'm going to recommend to you a couple. One is uh, two consultants I have. One is named Dr. Michael Curl. Okay. He is a, the principal of Kingwood Middle School in Humble. I think it's Kingwood. He's principal of middle school in uh, Humble, Texas. And um, he got principal of the year, et cetera. But he has put in so many structures to... Uh, uh, he's African-American. He's put in so many structures to um, help his kids be successful in an institution. I love that. And I think that's always a, that is always a, um, that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. a big one. Okay. I will reach out to Michael. And uh -huh. then another gentleman, I think he's this, another gentleman who's African-American. I think he's phenomenal also in his own way is, um, um, oh, just like that, it went by, <laughs> and that's okay. But he is the uh, he is works with a college, okay, okay, and in, in uh, Colorado. And what he does is he helps them figure out how they're going to uh, re um, Ricky Frierson is his okay. name, Ricky Frierson. He helps them figure out how to establish institutional pathways. To, to people who've not had the opportunity to, um, so again, these are institutional things, but like how, like one of the things, for example, he said this college was having difficulty attracting uh, minority students into the science field, okay? okay? Okay. At the graduate level. And he said, well, you don't do anything to make it possible for them to come here basically. And so again, he talked about all the ways these were more practical ideas for social bridging capital, like yeah. what kind of, what kind of, do you give them a mentor when they come help them tour the area? What do you do to make this an easier transition for them? That whole kinds of things, institutional. Um, and so I think I'm very, I'm more interested, right? I'm interested at the individual level, but I'm always also very interested at the institutional level and at the community level, how you set up those pathways uh, to larger sets of resources. 
And another woman who I think is just phenomenal, her name is Dr. Jan Young. She's in Memphis, Tennessee, and she uh, runs a uh, foundation called the Assisi Foundation. Uh, she is phenomenal in hmm. that she uh, she's a two-star general in the Air Force, retired, oh, and wow. she is a PhD in nursing, and nice. she runs a foundation. But she has some very interesting ideas about how you tie a community together. Nice. Huh. Okay. Uh, because I'm I'm pretty well convinced that you have to have those um, invisible networks, those social bridging networks at multiple levels, if somebody's going to actually transition out. Absolutely. And that makes total sense. Well, Dr. Payne, uh, Ruby, uh, I, I didn't tell you, my niece just turned 13 and her name is Ruby. Um, and, and she's she's a typical 13-year-old, but I call her I call her Rue. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you, Dr. Payne. It has been just a pleasure to meet one of my idols. And, and I'm very... Yes very excited to get this this podcast out um i tell you what i just want to tell you thank you thank you for what you do it's yeah. going to take everybody it's going to take a long time i appreciate that and uh to my listeners thank you very much for sticking around for another episode of the big ed idea podcast and and i'm going to leave you uh, just like I've done so many times with the immortal words of my grandfather, John Janoski. Um, he was a six foot six blue collar guy. But every time that I would leave his house, he would say, Ryan, until next time, I will see you in the funny paper. If you've found value in our discussions and believe in the power of mentorship, please consider contributing to our mission. Your financial support plays a crucial role in what we do. To make a contribution, visit our website at www.mentoringkids.org. Every donation, big or small, goes a long way in helping us to defend the potential of all kids within our six-county footprint. Once again, Thank you for being a part of this community. Your support means the world to us. Together, we can create a ripple effect of positive change. Stay inspired, stay motivated, and remember, we are better together.